Thank you, David, and thank you for everything that you do for Cato. I'm Leslie Albanese. I am a Senior Vice President for Initiatives, and I am pleased to introduce my colleague and friend, Cato Senior Fellow Justin Logan, who is an expert on U.S. grant strategy, international relations, and American foreign policy. Justin was a member of Cato's foreign policy team, first from 2003 to 2015, and then he did a complete 180 and decided to open a bar and restaurant. But the, but the fight for liberty called him back, and we are so pleased that Justin returned to Cato last year to help lead our defense and foreign policy efforts. Justin and his fellow Cato scholars have long advocated for a foreign policy of realism and restraint. This position, once a lone voice in Washington and beyond, has become a view that has grown influence and prominence in Washington policy circles and amongst the American people. These are troubling times, and we have seen the tragic stories out of Ukraine and the return of questions we thought we'd left behind with the end of the Cold War. The United States and European countries have unleashed an avalanche of sanctions on Russia in the wake of its invasion of Ukraine. Germany and other European countries have dramatically increased defense spending. Justin, along with his colleagues at Cato, have been urging this point for decades. In 2010, Justin said, what America is asking is for European countries to refuse transfer payments from U.S. taxpayers who are currently paying for their defense. Not likely to happen. As an expert in U.S.-Russia policy and U.S.-China policy, Justin has been predicting for some time now that our focus would soon move beyond the Middle East. Instead of rogue states and terrorist groups, we have now to consider difficult questions about what to do when a global power is being utterly reprehensible. Justin will share his thoughts on where does the war stand, the role of the United States, and what will be the implications of the war for European and U.S. national security. Please welcome Justin Logan. Thank you very much for that introduction, Leslie. Um, it's always hard to start a, a topic like this with a joke, um, but I will say that Peter and David uh, broke some news. You know, I had to throw out half of my suits after COVID, and I sprang for one that I could fit the COVID-20 into, but it sounds like maybe I should have sprung for Bermuda shorts and t-shirts or something if they're gonna change the dress code. Um, it's always hard to follow David. Um, David does a great job of talking about sort of the sweep of history. Um, and I have a subject that is both darker and somewhat more mundane um, than the breadth of David's talk. So obviously, as you can see here, um, not news that war has returned to Europe. Um, and so I'll lay out, if this clicker works, the structure of the talk. So first of all, for about the first half of the talk, I'm going to give a brief history of the first six weeks of the war, what we've learned about the Russian military, um, and where things stand today, what the prospects are for diplomacy. It gets even more depressing at that point, I'm sorry to say. Um, what the risks and costs to the United States and the West are of the policies that we've pursued in Ukraine, and subsequently, what the sort of medium-term implications are for U.S. and European um, security. So I'm going to start with some very technical language here, so I hope that you'll forgive me. Um, the initial invasion relied on an immensely stupid concept of operations. Um, as you can see, as, as is not news, the Russians invaded from the north, the east, and the south with a force of just under 200,000 men. 
and that immensely stupid concept of operations was implemented immensely stupidly. Um, so again, if you'll forgive the technical language there, I wanna go into some detail about this because I think it's important and to the extent that there is um, uh, a silver lining to this rather dark cloud, it's that the Russian military is not what we thought it was. So the first failure that the Russians did, and, and this is sort of mildly uh, technical military stuff compared to calling things stupid, um, they didn't do what are called combined arms. So despite what we learned in Iraq and Afghanistan about armor's vulnerability, um, the Russians have refused to do what are called combined arms. And that is that um, armor is not invulnerable, right? Sitting in a tank turret may seem from outside to be pretty secure, but in, as a fact, practical matter, it's not. So that's why they do what are called combined arms. That is the, the embedding of infantry along with armor because infantry has to actually protect the armor. As we have learned, very squ small squads of men, two, three, or up to four people, armed with um, what are called ATGMs, anti-tank guided missiles, um, can wreak havoc on, an, on a column of armor. Russia has lost more than 300 tanks and more than double that number of armored vehicles in the first six weeks of the war. And again, uh, unprotected armor is vulnerable to these guys, which if you're sitting in a tank turret, quickly turns into something that looks more like this. Um, so this is just an inexplicable uh, decision on the part of the Russian military. Failure number two, in the opening hours of the war, that is 72 hours, the, the Russians outran their supply lines, particularly in the north. They should have listened to my fellow Missourian, Omar Bradley, five-star general from World War II, seen on the right here, who was renowned for saying that amateurs talk strategy while professionals talk logistics. Soldiers need to eat, vehicles need gasoline, and you had in both cases, you had Russian soldiers looting supermarkets because they didn't have food and leaving vehicles on the side of the road because they did not have fuel. Um, just an inexplicable error uh, on the part of the Russian military. Their failure to do, do what's called the suppression of enemy air defenses, right? What most people thought in the opening hours of the war would happen was a fusillade of precision-guided munitions on air defenses, so particularly S-300 air defenses in Ukraine, which would soften up the airspace over Ukraine to allow a second fusillade of strikes on runways that would ground the Ukrainian Air Force. This never happened. So what you see here, the picture of the two gentlemen there, the gentleman on the left is the head of the uh, company in Turkey that makes the Bayraktar drone, which has rained hellfire down, which you see on the right side of the photo, um, on Russian columns and infantry inside Ukraine. So we either have a story to tell about the inaccuracy of Russian missile strikes, which I think is part of the story, or just a completely discombobulated idea of what the operational environment inside Ukraine was likely to be. Um, for the Russian military. And then finally, this immense uh, uh, operation from the north, the east, and the south failure to, was a complete failure to prioritize, right? They had this idea that it was sort of going to be a blitzkrieg, the government in Kiev was going to collapse, and they would be, to coin a phrase, welcomed as liberators. Well, we had the opportunity to test that theory, uh, and it came up short. Um, you know, so you have story after story after story about just the bumbling of the Russian military here. And I think, as a, as a sort of intellectually uh, 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 honest thing to say, I think it's quite uh, suggestive, this 
category, catalog of events um, that President Putin of Russia really drank deeply from this well of ideology about Ukraine being a fake country, about um, you know, this sort of Nazi mafia running the government and wouldn't our brethren in Ukraine be happy that, to be liberated from that? Well, no, stupid, no. Um, you know, this, this was just a terrible idea. And so I think, you know, if, again, if there's a, a, a bright spot such as it is in this, it's that the Russians by no means are 10 feet tall. And I think for decades, we're going to be studying how this got off the ground, and I think we're gonna learn that it has a lot to do uh, with President Putin's isolation um, from what would have been good military advice that would have laughed this plan uh, out of court. So what's next? Uh, I think there's this kind of morbid story to tell here. Um, I think that we're likely to see um, things get worse. And this is part of a bargaining process. And I say that not to make light of the tremendous suffering that is happening in Ukraine, but both sides are jockeying for leverage in negotiations which started at this, basically at the outset of the war, right? Um, President Zelensky has been negotiating and had negotiators negotiating with Russia since the opening hours of the war. And I think that what we're seeing is both sides attempting to get leverage in the context of those negotiations. Everybody knows there's going to be some kind of negotiated settlement to this conflict eventually. The question is who it's more favorable to. Um, and my fear is that things are likely to get ugly. Um, uglier, actually. And I think that we're going to see Russia probably replicate the tactics that it's taken in Kharkiv and Mariupol, um, because that's really page one of the Russian operational playbook, is just start shelling things until something changes. Um, and many times it doesn't change. But I think we read, one of, the, one of the dark things about this is that it has me reading game theorists again. I always hate uh, having to read those guys. Um, but they do talk about the extent to which at the, the moments before an armistice is brokered, you see things get really, really ugly because of their funny formal models with Greek letters. Um, so I think that is, th th that a negotiated settlement is not around the corner, unfortunately. Uh, I hope, I very much hope I'm wrong, and that as things get uglier, in fact, we may be getting closer to a negotiated settlement. Um, I wanna talk in conclusion about some of the US policy and its costs and risks. Um, I have a nice photo here of Jake Sullivan, who either hasn't been sleeping much or just got back from a Grateful Dead concert here because he looks a little spacey. Um, but Sullivan gave a press conference last, uh, last Monday, I should say, where he said something that I thought was notable. Um, Sullivan was talking about US policy in Ukraine, and I want to read a uh, some, somewhat long quote from him. Sullivan said, quote, we believe that our job is to support the Ukrainians. They will set the military objectives. They will set the objectives at the bargaining table. And I'm quite certain they're going to set those objectives at success, and we're going to give them every tool we can to help them achieve that success. But we are not going to define the outcome of this for the Ukrainians. That is up for them to define and us to support them in. And I think you want to be really wary about outsourcing your Ukraine policy to Ukraine, or outsourcing our Canada policy to Canada, for that matter. Um, the US and Ukrainian interests have overlapped in considerable, in considerable ways in this conflict, but they're not the same thing, right? It would have been banal a year ago to say that U.S. interests and Ukrainian interests are not exactly the same, but this implies um, that they kind of are. And so I worry about the extent to which um, we're simply outsourcing our policy to one of the principles in this conflict. Um, we're now reaching the gaffe portion of the talk. Um, President Biden, of course, went to Poland um, and said a number of things that, you know, um, 
it's, it's, I'm sure it's tough to be president at all, especially when you're 79. Um, but this, you know, sort of proxy war with a major nuclear power requires a really delicate and subtle uh, rhetorical approach, and we have Joe Biden. Um, so Biden said, first of all, if Russia uses chemical weapons, we'll respond in kind. And then they walked that back and said, no, of course we're not going to use chemical weapons there. Um, the president just misspoke. Um, another thing that he said was to U.S. soldiers in Poland, uh, he's talking about the bravery of the Ukrainian soldiers. Look at how they're stepping up, and you're going to see when you're there. And the White House walked that back saying, no, 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 U.S. troops are not, in fact, going to Poland. And then there was this one, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, talking about President Putin, which is a kind of moral sentiment one could hardly object to, um, but in the context of signaling with a power with which we're at a proxy war, we probably don't want President Putin Putin to think that our involvement in the war in Ukraine is about ousting him from power, because if anything, it's going to cause him to dig in more deeply. And that was apparently ad-libbed um, on the part of the president. So I think you know some of this requires really delicate uh, rhetorical needle threading. Uh, and again, President Biden might not be the guy for that. Um, so the implications for U.S. and European security, as Leslie suggested um, in her very generous introduction of me, um, Cato has been talking for a long time about making European security primarily a European problem. Um, and The Economist, two days after the war started, had a really beautiful piece that could have kind of been written by me or any number of Cato scholars calling Europe the free rider continent on defense primarily, but also on other matters. Um, and I think this was really a wake-up call, uh, obviously for the writers at The Economist, but also for European heads of state. Uh, so with a colleague, I wrote an article saying that both the dismal Russian military performance in the context of the war in Ukraine and the stepped up efforts in Europe, right? Germany, inexplicably to me, has said they have a 100 billion euro defense fund that they're going to spend over the next four years. And I thought, well, let's see what the German public thinks about this. The polling on it is between 65 and 78% of Germans support this initiative. This is a profound change in the European security environment. Um, and I think it's a good thing for a United States that has challenges both at home um, and in the Asia Pacific region. So that is something that I think the Biden administration probably doesn't want to take all of this on its shoulders and should allow Europe to step up more. This is a sort of shock therapy moment um, for the Europeans and not just the Germans, the Italians, the Poles and others uh, have done this as well. And then I think it's important to point out that you know, the United States has been a, a, a main player in terms of uh, the, the Ukrainian effort here, um, but the United States needs to signal its limits in the conflict um, to our Ukrainian partners um, and more generally, right, that we don't want this to be, uh, to, to escalate, to expand into a broader war um, and to signal that clearly. It may be the case Ukraine has had such success um, that their goals expand beyond what can be reasonably military attained, and I think we need to have a more candid discussion about that. Um, the bottom lines, I think, unfortunately, the war is likely to continue until the pain becomes unbearable for one or both parties. Um, I think it's quite likely Russia repeats the ugly and brutal tactics that they pursued in Mariupol and Kharkiv. Um, I think the escalation risks go up if Russia fears a strategic defeat or that the regime itself is in jeopardy, and that U.S.-Ukrainian interests may diverge in the terms of war termination. Um, so as I suggested at the outset, these are tough talks to give. Um, I hope I've shed a little bit of light on this subject, and now I think we have time for a couple questions.
It can't have been that dispositive. Maybe it's right down here in the front. Do you, do you have any idea of, we read a lot about the uh, support or lack of support by, by ordinary Russians. We can't really believe the polls. Right. You know, I, I still remember what happened in the Vietnam War. It was really the U.S. citizens that ended the war. What's really going on amongst the average person in Russia? So, as in most cases, um, it's varied. I think there has been a certain rally around the flag effect in Russia. At the same time, there have been big protests in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. Um, and those people really deserve our admiration, right? Like, it's one thing to protest against a war in the United States, and it's a heck of another proposition to protest against a war in Putin's Russia. Um, I think in a, in a system like the Russian system, the question is about the elites, right? And I think Putin has showed from the beginning of this conflict, probably through the present moment, to have been completely isolated in a bubble. He has really serious if I can say, paranoia about COVID. I mean, we remember the table with Macron, you know, 50 feet down at the end of the other table. So that, I mean, I think he would have been in a bubble in a non-pandemic time, um, but he's really in an information bubble in part because of that. So the question is where the elites are. And the problem there is that in many cases, the elite's interests are wedded to the propagation of the system right? This is the perverse thing, right? They see if Putin goes, the whole thing may collapse and with it their own interests. So I think that's the, the, the brutal reality. But the people in Russia really, you know, and one in five people in Russia have relatives in Ukraine. You know, they, as, this, as this is getting going and information is sort of seeping through, saying, what are we doing over there? They're not Nazis. You know, my babushka is not a Nazi. You know, so I, I think it's, um, you know, they've really, it's just been appalling, the, the story that Putin has sort of told here. Um, but I think that if you want to see about outcomes, you want to think about the elites, and, I'm, and I have a kind of dark view of that so far. Um, we have, I think, another question down in the front, if that's all right. Maybe two more questions down in the front. I don't know. We could, <laughs> I'll take two if that's. Now that uh, we seem to be moving away from Kiev, down to uh, Mariupol and uh, the Ukraine, mm -hmm. we, we have the advantage we don't have to be, go as far. And do you think that we might win, actually become more effective in taking over, having a land route down to the Crimea, which is what we wanted to, and uh, solidify right. the Donbass? Right. Should we take the other one and I'll try to thread the needle on both? Great. Uh, slightly different direction. There's been a lot of speculation about the role of China either mm -hmm. in uh, supporting Putin or in restraining him. Yeah. Uh, do you have a perspective on right. that? Um, so I think that the question about what the Ukrainians call the JFO, but you know, is, is sort of the Donbass now, that region that is now being contested. Yes, the Russians are trying to pinch down uh, on the Ukrainians from both the north and the south. Um, that has not happened yet. Um, and I think there's a real question about the Russian ability to reconstitute, right? I can tell you a story today about how the Russians regroup and really deal the Ukrainians a setback in the Donbass. I can also tell you a story where the trend line just continues down for the Russians. So I don't have a great uh, uh, insight into that, but on paper, it should be easier for the Russians to operate there than in this gigantic campaign that they've spread out over the course of the whole country. Um, in the context of China, 
China, look, China's very good at hiding. Uh, they like to not say things and not do things. Um, I think we could take a lesson from them in some sense. Um, but they have really gone in with the Russians on this, right? They tried to just sort of hide and not say anything, but it became impossible for them. And so now they're talking about, um, they're really taking the Russian line. And I think that's emerged over the past week or two that they have sort of gone all in on um, Russia's need for defense and et cetera, et cetera, in the, in the context of this. And I think, you know, there are all sorts of questions swirling around about um, sanctions implications for an alter alternative to the SWIFT system, for example, which China has been kicking around for a decade but hasn't really gotten off the ground. They may see an interest in those sanctions continuing so that they could wind up an alternative to the SWIFT system. Um, they have interests probably in keeping the United States attention bogged down in Europe. Um, but I think if you had to judge it one way or the other, the Chinese have kind of gone in with the Russians on this thing. I don't know if we have time for one more. Yeah, okay, great. Um, maybe the lady in the back right there. My question is, given the um, notable uh, lack of concern for human life of the Russians, and of the Chinese too, uh, do you think that possibly uh, Russia may have an edge in Ukraine? Because they, could, you know, they can simply, as I've shown, uh, bombard something uh, to oblivion, and if they bombard uh, enough people to oblivion, then they can certainly, uh, and, they're, and they're, since they are really concerned about resources rather than people or even liber liberty, that uh, it's a win-win for them. That the sort of massive uh, no, I don't think it's. A, I, I don't think they see it as a win-win for them. Maybe you can clarify the question. I, I may not have understood. Russia does not, is not concerned about life, right. but rather about resources, yeah. ports, etc., like yeah. China. Yeah. That uh, if they feel that they are losing in a certain area, they, and they have missiles and whatever, that they simply will uh, kill enough people, and their view is that they can replace them with Russians. And therefore, ultimately, in the end, they will win. There aren't enough Russians to replace Ukrainians. Um, I mean, Russia has an immense demographic crisis. Um, life expectancy in Russia is lower than it was in the 1950s for a baby boy born today. This is really shocking. Um, so I don't think, I think it's quite clear that their you know, uh, sensitivity to individual rights and, and, and human life is non-existent at the upper levels of the Russian government, to put it mildly. Um, but I don't think that, you know, uh, 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 creating a desert and calling it peace uh, would serve any conception of the Russian interest, right? Um, unless you're, you're, you know, you've got to have something there to use. And if you look at Mariupol, it's, it's, it's just, it's a ghost town. Right, um, so I don't think that you know that even in the even in the, the darkest reading of you know Russia's calculation of sort of strategic depth um, that that they're blundering right. It's worse than a crime. It's a blunder. Um, they're failing, and as they're failing, they're lashing out, and that form of lashing out is the kind of brutality that we're seeing. Um, and that's why I think it's you know President Zelensky himself has said there's going to be some negotiated settlement here. Um, the question is what it looks like. And I think that, you know, there, there are so many issues on the table. Crimea, for example, right? Is, is it realistic to say that Crimea could be returned to Ukraine in the context of this war? I would imagine that Zelensky's advisors are telling him different things. Different people have different opinions. Um, but the broader your objectives become, the more fighting there's going to be and the more suffering and death. Um, sorry. Oh, is that it? Thank you. Thank you very much for your attention.